Hi, this is Kendall Boyson, professional life and recovery coach, and you're listening to Encouragementology, the practice of instilling hope. Hi there. Thanks for joining me. On this show, we're stepping up and taking notice of the needs around us and in ourselves. Feeling frustrated and small when it comes to the problems around you? You're not alone. No matter how big the problem is or seems, you can make a powerful impact today, right this second. All you have to do is notice and take action. You might be asking, what can I do? That's right, but this time, say it with conviction. What can I do? And then be willing to pitch in. Just like challenges can seem huge, solutions can be small. Your efforts can help one person immensely or inspire more to help many. Either way, your actions have impact. I used to have that same mindset. The world's problems were for other people to figure out. People with more power and influence. I mean, I was still trying to get somewhere in my own life. Without everything figured out, how could I be of any help? As I started my career, sure, I helped those around me with training, leadership, and a little motivation, but I still couldn't feel the impact of my efforts. Then I stumbled upon encouragementology. Okay, God pushed me, but still, it was a revelation beyond all others. People need encouragement. It helps with restoration and rejuvenation of the body and soul and renewal of spirit of others and even of those who encourage, according to recent research. Encouragement is vital to child maturation and adult optimal health. The healing benefits of encouragement outweigh criticism and can build self-confidence. And guess what? It's free, easy to do, so rewarding, and creates a ripple. When you change the outlook and trajectory of a person, the sky is the limit and there's no telling how high and how far they can go. We all have needs and encouragement is just one of them. Over at haponomy.org, I found the Haponomy Human Needs Model. So, what do we need? One single question will determine your entire life. Do you know which one? Above all else, Do you know the answer? Answers from a handful of people have determined the course of our history, and still, it's a question we rarely ask ourselves. What do I want in life? You may end up with success, fame, money, wisdom, maybe happiness. Generally, though, it stops there. You probably don't give it that much conscious thought. You unconsciously chase for the answer over your entire life, for the pursuit of happiness, and then you die. Recently, science joined the debate and the results have been astounding. Never before have we known so much about what we consciously and subconsciously look for in life. We're not the first to think of what we need in a scientific way. The grandfather of human needs, Abraham Maslow, is probably best known for his Maslow five-dimension pyramid. It's considered to be the very first important human needs model. Built in the 1940s, there's a lot of merit to this model as it identifies key categories in what we need. 
Later on, the five-level model was revised to add cognitive needs, aesthetic needs, and self-transcendence. Using the perspective of consciousness, both of an individual and group, is an alternative approach to answering the question of what we need. The theory of spiral dynamics, developed by Beck and Cohen, provides an intriguing angle as they focus on levels of consciousness. They suggest that the key driver of our needs is the level of awareness we have in the world, basically a primarily spiritual perspective of life. Most recent research, 2010, led by Douglas Kendrick, offers a third alternative view of looking at the question, what are we looking for? The study suggests that our needs for survival and gene transfer command our entire existence. Procreating, parenting, and finding a mate are at the core of our existence. We are bodies, minds, and souls. Did you notice that the three model types all have their own distinct angle on what humans are? Maslow mainly focused on the mental and psychological dimension of people albeit Maslow 1, covers our bodily survival needs. Beck and Cowan targeted the spiritual part while Kendrick zoomed into our biology. To us, human beings are not primarily biological, psychological, or spiritual. They're all three. This is why focusing on one dimension constitutes a fundamental limitation which we want to transcend. A model that has the ambition to explain what we need should therefore encompass all three parts, body, mind, and soul, whatever the latter exactly is. There are two additional limitations to Maslow's pyramid, which we want to transcend. First of all, the Maslow pyramid suggests a linear build up between these dimensions, as if in case we'd feel insecure, we wouldn't yet open up the levels that are on top of the second level of Maslow's pyramid. To us, all the needs are simultaneously present, depending on who you are, where you're from, and what specific situation you're in. One or some needs will just be more at the forefront. Finally, as with the spiral dynamics model, we believe that a truly usable model should not only be applicable to the individual, but also to the group entity, whether that's a city, country, continent, or even humanity as a whole. The hyponymy human needs model explains this model contains five main spheres divided into 21 different dimensions. Yes, people are complex beings. Sphere number one, survive. We all need air to breathe. Without it, we choke within three minutes and water to drink. After three days, we die of thirst. We need food. We can sustain ourselves for about three weeks without eating. Sleep is the fourth essential building block of our survival. Long sleep deprivation doesn't kill us directly. It's the resulting organ failure that does. Randy Gardner holds the world's record. He stayed awake for 11 days. So these four building blocks are the essentials we all need to cover to have our biological machinery, our bodies, working properly. Sphere number two, feeling at ease. We all strive to achieve a minimal level of comfort, security, and ease both of our bodies and minds. 
This need manifests in many ways, six to be more exact. At the basis, we all want to be safe. It's practically impossible to feel at ease if you have to worry about being killed, raped, or attacked. We also want a minimal level of basic comfort, like proper shelter from the elements, a toilet, a place to sleep comfortably, and clothes to keep us warm are some of our essentials for well-being. Health, both for body and mind, although overrated when related to our well-being, is a cornerstone for a high-quality life as health positively impacts a multitude of other dimensions, which we consider important. A fourth dimension that drives our feeling of being at ease is privacy. The large majority, if not all of us, have insecurities and want to make sure that these aren't shared with others. Do you have anything at all you prefer people not to know? If yes, you want privacy. There is a lot to be told about the fifth dimension of feeling at ease, financial security. Today, money, and especially the lack or perceived lack of, impacts many of our decisions and actions. These actions often have negative consequences towards others. Feeling financially secure enables us to divert our focus to other dimensions like personal growth and helping others. Finally, freedom to be who you want, say and do what you want, are primordial for our psychological well-being. However, freedom in itself is not absolute as we also need connection with and understanding from other people, which brings us to our third main sphere of our needs. Connect. We are innately social beings. Did you know infants require human touch to survive or that research suggests loneliness can cause heart failure? As we live, our need to connect with others becomes more complex as we seek love, companionship, and understanding from others. Connection starts at birth, as we all have a family, even if it's only our mother. Biological ties strongly determine the concept of family, but are not always needed. Many people who are adopted or orphaned consider others whom they don't have blood ties with to be their family. Already early in life, we develop connections with people we encounter. Some of those might develop to be friends. Many among us even find friendship with animals. The third form of connection can be found in the form of a partner. A partner ideally offers us sexual and psychological intimacy, complementing us as we walk through life. We strive for a connection to our community. A community is a pretty abstract concept. Often, it's geographically linked. For instance, your street, city, or country. Increasingly, it transcends the geographical limitations as we connect with people with the same interest and convictions across the globe. Sphere number four, grow. A fourth sphere that deeply matters to us is what we become as individuals. We all develop ourselves, intentionally or because situations force us to. In this model, there are three distinct dimensions to individual growth. We all learn throughout our lives, as we all want to understand the world we live in. We acquire knowledge either via education, a Google search query, by personal experience, or by age-old traditions. 
Secondly, people are curious beings. We like to explore new environments and new sensations, whether that be savoring new cuisine, experiencing exhilarating outdoor activities, or visiting foreign planets. Finally, we also strive to be the best persons we can be. We want to grow our talents, which we all have, and apply these in our daily lives. We all want to excel, even though we sometimes feel overwhelmed, lack the energy to do so, or our need for financial security prevents us to do so. Sphere number five, let go. The last sphere which we want to nurture is the one which helps us to let go of our individual selves. These dimensions give us the feeling that we belong to something bigger than just ourselves. The first one is artistic. We all want to experience art and creativity, either actively or passively. You may intuitively think of musicians and other kinds of artists, but most of us fulfill these needs by decorating our house, listening to music, and watching films. We also help others. Helping others makes us feel good about ourselves. Whether you consider this to be selfish or not depends on the perspective you hold. A biological perspective shows that helping others activates our reward centers in our brains, while a more spiritual perspective supports the view that human beings are not just biological and rational beings, but have a moral compass inherently built in. We also care about our planet and strive to preserve our environment. There are many reasons why we do so. Our environment forms the stage where we can fulfill many of our needs. By sustaining our environment, we ensure that we can survive, live a healthy life, and we ensure that our loved ones can have a high-quality life themselves. Finally, we strive to find wisdom and inner peace by emotionally accepting the world as it is, not using its imperfection as an excuse to do nothing. That wisdom can be found in the foundations of many religions and spiritual traditions, in the experience of awe of mystics, in meditation and silence, and the beauty that crosses our paths. A human needs model is an imperfect tool. You can agree or disagree with the model, and optimizing it holds a lot of merit in itself. I remember a story that was circulating around Facebook a couple of years ago. It was about a woman, I believe she was in her 90s, who wrote a note and left it in a neighbor's mailbox. The note asked for friendship. She had lived in the neighborhood for many years and didn't really know her neighbors. Now she's all alone and needing companionship and conversation. The neighbor answered and then some. She baked some cupcakes, grabbed her daughter, and went for a visit. This visit was just the start of a beautiful friendship. What struck me about the story was that the neighbor mentioned seeing the woman for years sitting on her porch, but just figured she didn't want to be bothered. When I moved my desk to the front of the house, I was finally able to feel a part of the neighborhood while I was working, thanks to some beautiful picture windows. I noticed a woman walking by my house every day like clockwork. On one occasion, I followed her track only to find out that we actually lived on the same street. I casually questioned Matt, wonder if she wants to walk our dog. 
Of course, he laughed and thought I was crazy. But three days later, she was in front of me in a line at a store. I told her that I believed we were neighbors and that I watch her walk by every day. And then I casually asked if she wanted some company in my nine-year-old Australian Shepherd. Two days later, she knocked on my door to take Rory for her first walk. That was almost two years ago. I profusely thank her, but she in turn thanks me. She said it's one of the best parts of her day and that it gives her purpose. She has a friend she looks forward to seeing every day. And believe me, the feeling is mutual with Rory. Ariella Paulson shares three ways to recognize when someone needs support found at Mighty Well. How do you know when someone needs support? Ideally, they would feel comfortable coming to you and directly asking for what they need. This can be easier said than done, however, which is why this guide was created. If someone you care about seems to be struggling but hasn't directly come to you, don't take it personally. There are many barriers that can prevent someone from letting themselves be vulnerable. If you aren't sure whether or not you should step in, here are some tips. Number one, create opportunities to listen. In everyday life, we don't typically create situations that invite vulnerable sharing. Sure, we may ask, how are you? But often we don't actually expect a real answer. The best way to know if someone you care about is having a difficult time, just listen. Go for a walk or set up a call and ask, how are you, really? Make sure you have plenty of time and privacy. Listen actively, giving your full attention. Don't think about how you'll respond when it's your turn. Ask questions when something piques your interest or seems concerning. For example, if they mention offhand that work has been really stressful, ask them why. If you know from a previous conversation that they were nervous about an upcoming doctor's appointment, ask them how it went. It means a lot to people when you show an interest in their lives and take the time to hear what's really going on. Through these conversations, if it seems like an area or more of their life is difficult right now, Ask them if they need anything. Specific offers can feel more helpful than general, is there something I can do? For example, would it be helpful to have an extra set of hands when you move next month? Or wow, that's a lot going on this week. I have some time available. Would it help if I brought over a meal tomorrow? Those offers don't pass judgment or make a sweeping generalization about how put together they are right now. But they can provide the support they need to get back on track. One quick note here. You may find that these deeper conversations can feel heavy during this time when every aspect of life feels shaky. It helps to end conversations on a positive note. You could try by sharing something you're grateful for, setting up something to look forward to, or asking them to tell you more about something they mentioned that was going well. Number two. Notice changes. During times of increased stress or mental health challenges, we tend to put on a show to save face with the world. Some things will slip through the facade, however, so it's important to keep an eye out. Have you noticed any changes in their personal hygiene, spending habits, 
alcohol consumption? When they talk about themselves, do they use negative language or self-deprecating jokes? Do they spend their time differently? Do they still show interest in hobbies? Does their mood, personality, or energy level seem different? These signs and more can cue you into something is up. You can also use these changes as a way to start a conversation. I've noticed you're not painting as much anymore. Is everything okay? Be mindful of changes like hygiene, weight gain, or alcohol consumption that carry additional stigma. They may not be the best conversations to start with and may lead the person to become defensive or embarrassed. Number three, walk a day in their shoes. One of the best ways to gauge someone's well-being is simple empathy. As they tell you about their day-to-day life, put yourself in their position. What would it feel like? How would you be faring? What specific support would you appreciate? Using this perspective to offer support can also be a way to show them you would need help too in their shoes. I can't believe you're handling this so well. If it were me, I'd definitely be struggling. Do you want help with blank? Pride can be a tricky barrier when it comes to accepting help, so this helps take the focus off of them. In the end, it's better to have offered support or at least made it clear that you care and are available if they need it in the future. Even if they aren't ready to accept support, The extra communication will help them feel comfortable coming to you later. And it feels good to know people care about you, even when you're not struggling. Do you have a friend you love confiding in? Have you ever wondered why? Is it because they give great advice or is it because they are good listeners? There's an outreach group whose mission is to talk to the homeless. They take two bag chairs and invite the person to have a chat. Being heard is such a powerful and empowering act. Not trying to fix a problem and provide a solution, just listen actively. I developed a practice called Here's Your Cue. Q stands for connect, understand, and encourage. To understand, you have to listen. I also created a hashtag share learn, grow. Sharing your fears, challenges, triumphs, and dreams with another person helps you to learn and grow. We are our own best teachers. There is a world of knowledge in those around you. Now, reach out and start up a conversation. I want to talk a little bit more about active listening. Optimal Lifestyle gives us a better idea of active listening, how to be a great listener. This is found on their YouTube channel. Many of us don't listen to other people. Instead, we just think and wait for our turn to express our own opinion. Take a step back and look at your colleagues' conversations. It's likely it'll look more like two monologues where everyone tells about themselves. The cure for it is active listening. It's a very powerful skill. It brings people closer, builds trust, and helps people to open up. Here are five steps on how to do it. One, stay focused. Keep natural eye contact, don't judge, and be patient. 
Two, really listen. Don't think about your similar experiences and what you should tell next. Three, allow for periods of silence. Wait till the other person speaks again. Four, from time to time, repeat the other person's words or paraphrase it back to them. It will reassure that you really listen and encourage them to open up. Five, understand the emotions behind the words. When you paraphrase, also try to express the other feelings back to them. Active listening is rather difficult and can be more tiring than talking itself. Be prepared for long conversations. On the other hand, you will gain trust and people will simply like to spend time with you. You will also understand them much better. At the beginning, try it with your spouse or a good friend. You'll see how great they feel after talking to you. If you want to learn more about Optimal Lifestyle, subscribe to our channel below. I'm sure you've heard of empathy. Empathy is a broad concept that refers to the cognitive and emotional reactions of an individual to the observed experiences of another. Having empathy increases the likelihood of helping others and showing compassion. Leslie University informs us on the psychology of emotional and cognitive empathy found at leslie.edu. Empathy is a building block of morality for people to follow the golden rule. It helps if they can put themselves in someone else's shoes. According to the Greater Good Science Center, a research institute that studies the psychology, sociology, and neuroscience of well-being. It's also a key ingredient of successful relationships because it helps us understand the perspectives, needs, and intentions of others. Though they may seem similar, there is a clear distinction between empathy and sympathy. According to Hodges and Myers in the Encyclopedia of Social Psychology, empathy is often defined as understanding another person's experience by imagining oneself in that other person's situation. One understands the other person's experience as if it were being experienced by themselves. A distinction is maintained between self and other. Sympathy, in contrast, involves the experience of being moved by or responding in tune with another person. Researchers distinguish between two types of empathy. Especially in social psychology, empathy can be categorized as an emotional or cognitive response. Emotional empathy consists of three separate components. The first is feeling the same emotion as another person. The second component, personal distress, refers to one's own feelings of distress in response to perceiving another one's plight. The third emotional component, feeling compassion for another person, is the one most frequently associated with the study of empathy in psychology. It's important to note that feelings of distress associated with emotional empathy doesn't necessarily mirror the emotions of the other person. While empathetic people distress when someone falls, they aren't exactly feeling the same physical pain. This type of empathy is especially relevant when it comes to discussions of compassionate human behavior. There's a positive correlation between feeling empathetic concern and being willing to help others. 
Many of the most noble examples of human behavior, including aiding strangers and stigmatized people, are thought to have empathetic roots. Debate remains concerning whether the impulse to help is based in altruism or self-interest. The second type of empathy is cognitive empathy. This refers to how well an individual can perceive and understand the emotions of another. Cognitive empathy, also known as empathetic accuracy, involves having more complete and accurate knowledge about the contents of another person's mind, including how the person feels. Cognitive empathy is more like a skill. Humans learn to recognize and understand others' emotional state as a way to process emotions and behavior. While it's not clear exactly how humans experience empathy, there is a growing body of research on the topic. Experts in the field of social neuroscience have developed two theories in an attempt to gain a better understanding of empathy. The first, simulation theory, proposes that empathy is possible because when we see another person experiencing an emotion, We simulate or represent the same emotion in ourselves so that we can firsthand know what it feels like. That comes from psychology today. There is a biological component to this theory as well. Scientists have discovered preliminary evidence of mirror neurons that fire when humans observe and experience emotion. There are also parts of the brain in the medial prefrontal cortex that show overlap of activation for both self-focused and other-focused thoughts and judgments. Some experts believe that other scientific explanation of empathy is in complete opposition to the simulation theory. It's theory of mind, the ability to understand what another person is thinking and feeling based on rules for how one should think or feel. This theory suggests that humans can use cognitive thought process to explain the mental state of others. By developing theories about human behavior, individuals can predict or explain others' actions according to this theory. While there's no clear consensus, it's likely that empathy involves multiple processes that incorporate both automatic emotional responses and learned conceptual reasoning. Depending on context and situation, one or both empathetic responses may be triggered. Empathy seems to arise over time as part of human development, and it also has roots in evolution. In fact, elementary forms of empathy have been observed in primate relatives, in dogs, and even in rats. From a development perspective, humans begin exhibiting signs of empathy in social interactions during the second and third years of life. According to Gene Decity's article, The Neural Development of Empathy in Humans, there is compelling evidence that pro-social behavior such as altruistic helping emerges early in childhood. Infants as young as 12 months of age begin to comfort victims of distress, and 14 to 18-month-old children display spontaneous, unrewarded helping behaviors. While both environmental and genetic influences shape a person's ability to empathize, we tend to have the same level of empathy throughout our lives, with no age-related decline. It's true that we likely feel empathy due to evolutionary advantage. Empathy probably evolved in the context of the parental care and characteristics of all mammals. 
signaling their state through smiling and crying, human infants urged their caregiver to take action. Females who responded to their offspring's needs out-reproduced those who were cold and distant. This suggests we have a natural predisposition to developing empathy. However, social and cultural factors strongly influence where, how, and to whom it's expressed. Sometimes things so simple elude us, which is why uncovering the impact of encouragement was such a profound moment for me. It was there all along, and I had missed it so many times before. I kept thinking I had to give more, do more, be more, and all I needed to do was listen and encourage. Encouragement leads to confidence, which leads to action, which leads to accomplishment, which branches off to more encouragement and so on, causing that ripple effect. So give it a try. I found um, an interesting perspective from Kid President. If you've never watched a Kid President video, they're pretty funny. But this particular one is how to create a positive ripple effect. So many of us, again, going back to the beginning, are saying, what can I do? I'm just one person. It's just little old me. What kind of impact can I have? Well, let's take a listen to Kid President. Oh, they smell like America. Today's episode is about giving back and about how good can spread. I'm going to need a bigger bag. Got too much good to give. You're not one of those people who say the world can't be changed. You, you believe that it's everybody's duty to give the world a reason to dance, right? We have a whole world to make more awesome, people. We need you. We really need you. Kids, people used to be kids, everybody. But how, Kid President? Everything's terrible. Hey, quiet you. I know, sometimes things can look pretty dark, but there's always light. Light is always still there. In fact, let me show you how good spreads. Yeah, this is my baby right here. Okay, I, I need you guys to listen up. This is how good spreads. Let's read. How does good spread? Can we make the world brighter? Can we together make somebody's load lighter? Some people think good only spreads if you have lots of money. Or a nonprofit who makes a cool video that's slick and really funny. Burp. Does good only spread when you have the right hashtag, or the right bracelet, or t-shirt, or give out free tote bags? Does good happen by accident, just out of the blue? Does good only spread when Beyonce allows it to? Queen Bee? She's pretty powerful, but wow, 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 so are you. The world's only seen a glimpse of what you can do. Your heart is so big, but you might feel so small. I'm telling you now, you're thinking as a flaw. <laughs> good spreads when good is spread. And that's totally how you live. You share and you love, and you give and give and give. If someone needs lifting, you send them a rope. Your little whispers of love sends out huge gusts of hope. I know what you're thinking. That's a nice little story you're reading, Kid President. But what about me? You wanna know how you can make good things spread in the world? Show up. Show up in the world, you'll be a light. You'll see work to be done on your left and your right. Like Caitlin, a girl who met people in need and started putting inspiring words on dusty old keys. Now she gives people jobs and second chances. She's filling the world with more and more dances. Or Ricky, a funny guy who wanted to share random acts of kindness everywhere. 
communities are changing in Cleveland and tons of other places because Ricky just wanted to put smiles on folks' faces. I mean, there's other things too. Ever heard of Socktober? Well, Brad, the guy behind the camera here. But before we started all this cute president stuff, he started Socktober. He was just a guy who wanted to make a difference. He was just a sad, pale man. Hey, come on. <laughs> it's just the truth. Well, anyway, he heard socks were one of the most needed but least donated item in homeless shelters. Right when they're preparing in the winter months, there are over 600,000 men and women who are homeless in the United States. And some of them were children. He started telling some friends, and then they started telling some friends, and telling schools, and telling churches, and then the next year, grew even bigger. We started this little kid president project, and I invited some people to help out. And you totally have. Socktober drives have happened all over the United States, in every single state, and on every single continent. That's the whole world, y'all. There's just a need. There's good to be done. And we're inviting people to do it. I guess that's just how good spreads. So how will you show up? How will you make things brighter? By loving the people next to you. And making your loads lighter. Anger is contagious. Hate and fear, they are too. But I'm not here to spread those. <laughs> and neither are you. We're here to spread hope and make the world dance. Open your eyes and your heart and we might stand a chance. Get out of your comfort zone and get out of your head. Get to loving people and good can't help but be spread. Oh, don't know about y'all, but I'm ready. Ready to dance. Ooh, mail. Thank you. Dear Cupid, I sent you a letter in your last video. Why didn't you answer in this one? Your voice is changing. Are you gonna be Cupid President forever? Oh, ah. Uh. <laughs> I'll answer that next video. Socktober. I want to say a special word of thanks to Glad to Give. <laughs> this Socktober is going to be the best yet. And it's thanks to people like you and also to awesome brands like Glad. Glad to Give. They're pinching in and making incredible stuff happen. Check out this bag, y'all. I'm filling up this bag with as many socks as I can. That bag can help my neighbors who are homeless. America socks. I love America socks. Everyone's pitching in, and that makes good spread. Now, if you excuse me, I got some socks to collect and some bags to fill. I'm out. If you want to share Encouragementology with a friend who needs to know they're not alone in this journey of self-discovery, you can visit Encouragementology.com or anywhere you stream your content to receive this episode and all others. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram for additional encouragement throughout the week. So I challenge you, take notice of those around you who may have quiet needs. You have the power to make a real difference with the actions you take. Listen to understand and take the time to share words of encouragement. It's free and far-reaching. I know you can do it. Thank you for listening to Encouragementology with Kendall Boyson, where we find positive ways to handle some of life's challenges. Someone's through until the past was clear. That's when I found you.